Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to IndyCar Weekly. I'm Nat Newell, Motorsports Editor for IndyCar, and I'm joined by Nathan Brown, our Motorsports Insider, and uh, as well as uh, the Insider for USA Today. Uh, Connor Daly was not able to join us this week. We'll certainly miss his insight, and I am a uh, poor replacement for Connor, but we'll, uh, there's just too much going on this week, uh, last seven days or so, um, that we couldn't uh, skip a podcast with uh, all the news going on in IndyCar. Um, Let's start, Nathan, with uh, obviously you actually got to cover a race. We hired Nathan in October to be our uh, IndyCar writer, and it wasn't until uh, months and months after we expected that he actually got to cover a race, obviously because of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, just what were your initial impressions, first thoughts about getting to actually cover a race? Yeah, it was exciting. Uh, I think it was you, – you always kind of try to imagine – what, uh, how fast a race is going to be as far as just all the action and trying to keep up with everything. I think that was the thing that I took away more than anything, just the fact that, you know, this race really all happened in about an hour and a half span. All of this lead up, all of the weeks and weeks of discussion, and this whole thing is going to go down in about 90 minutes. Obviously, we also had the, uh, the practice and qualifications happen that day, too. I think a lot of folks uh, in the press box that were also there covering that race, we talked after everything, you know, after all the dust settled and all talked about how fast the day went. I think we envisioned, even with it being a one day show, that there would be a little bit more time in between things, or at least it would feel like more time to kind of digest all of the news, you know, what, what came out of practice, where people qualified, but it was really you know, really kind of breakneck. Uh, and, and that made it really exciting. It made it fun. Uh, it, and it made for still a lot of great stories and news to come out of that uh, one day show at Texas Motor Speedway. Uh, you mentioned breakneck. That's pretty much describes what Scott Dixon was doing uh, during the race. It didn't seem like anyone had a chance to catch up to him. Um, to just talk about his dominating performance uh, on Saturday. Yeah, uh, I think I think from talking to Scott uh, and also team director Mike Hall uh, earlier today, they really felt confident with uh, the addition of engineer Mike Cannon to their team in the offseason and him working with Scott, with Scott's years of experience, uh, that even in a, a really weird, unprecedented situation as far as this one-day show and planning for it months and months with a lot of uncertainties about how the car would interact with the uh, untested tires, the aero screen and everything. They still felt like they were going to have a really good combination. And right out of the gate, Scott was really top on speed uh, in practice, put down uh, the second fastest qualifying time, just got nipped by uh, Joseph Newgarden there uh, toward the end of qualifications. And he finally made a pass on Joseph. I think it was on lap 32. And you could tell right from there on uh, that Scott had the best car all day. Uh, his teammate Felix Rosenquist 
started to uh, you know make up some ground. I think Scott had a you know, five six second lead on the rest of the field around halfway through the race, and um, Felix started chipping away a little bit and really showed how dominant and how strong that CGR package was for that whole team. Marcus Erickson even had a great car. Uh, had I think a pit stop issue toward the end of the race and probably would have finished around the top seven or eight in the race had he not had that. So um, in the end, you know, it could have been a really great shootout. Felix made a bit of a risky pass with nine laps to go uh, when he was trying to catch up to Scott bridged about the one second gap that they had coming out of the pits for the final time and ended up in the wall. And that led to uh, a three lap, sprint to the finish there where uh, Dixon still ended up winning by more than four seconds. So he built a four second lead um, in three laps that, that in itself, I think illustrates just how dominant he was on Saturday. There was a lot of talk about the, the restart at the end and, and how they uh, handled that. Just uh, take us through that. And, uh, it was just an interesting way for, uh, it was really the first sort of test of, for Roger Penske being in charge uh, of IndyCar as well as obviously his own team. Uh, just sort of take us through how that played out. Yeah, so typically the rule is from the IndyCar rulebook um, for a, a speedway track like that with 15 laps to go, typically the rule um, in the book is that you would move those lapped cars, uh, drive them through pit lane, and allow all the guys who are on the lead lap to be right close to each other for a restart like we had. But the worry was because they were on NBC, they were starting to get pretty close to that deadline there uh, right around 10 p.m. It wasn't a hard and fast deadline. It's not like if you know they'd had three other yellows during the race, during the middle of the race, they would have moved it to NBC Sports, I don't think. But um, you don't want to choose probably to do something that would push back NBC's programming that was a, a rerun of SNL uh, that did draw better viewing numbers than uh, IndyCar season opener for what it is. So they had a, you know they had the choice to black to uh, to red flag the race, which would have taken too much time. They wouldn't have been able to get that done, and I think that was pretty pretty soon seemed to just not be a great option. They could have driven the cars through the lapped cars through pit lane, which would have eaten up at least one more lap, if not more. At that point, you're essentially starting restarting the race on the white flag, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, or they could do what they did and just not move the lap cars. They have the leeway for that in the rule book where um, they can essentially choose to ignore their own rule uh, through some extenuating circumstances. And they ruled with such short time to make that decision. They felt like that was the best thing to do. It did mean that Simon Paginot, who was in second place behind Scott Dixon, had a couple lap cars between him and Dixon. And that certainly probably helped uh, Scott build that four and a half second lead there that he finished with at the end at the checkered flag. But um, especially on a track where it was so hard to pass all day. Uh, it, I, but even still, I, I really don't think Dixon was going to lose that race. So yeah, maybe meant that Simon had a little bit uh, bigger gap between him and Scott at the end, but Dixon had proved all day that he had by far the best car. It was obviously a one-day uh, show, uh, practice qualifying, then obviously the race right there in a row. 
what were the feelings? How did that around the paddock and everywhere else? How did that go? Is that uh, obviously they don't have a lot of choices right now because they're trying to limit uh, people's exposure with the pandemic and all, but how did that work for everybody? Yeah, we talked to Dixon, uh, Dixon Newgarden and Pagano immediately following the race uh, on our podium Zoom call. And all three of those guys spoke on that and they don't think they really minded it too much. Um, I think it, from, from talking to some other drivers too this week, I think it just forces you to be more decisive. Um, you, it also forces you to make sure that you have a really good car going into the race. Um, Connor Daly said when I talked to him uh, a couple of days ago following the race to kind of recap things, he said that he felt like uh, his Carlin car that he drove for that race was really, really solid. They did qualify, I think, 19th, but because they were able to be patient and just kind of wait for some other people to make mistakes, they were able to climb up all the way to sixth. Um, Oliver Askew, kind of same thing with Aaron McLaren SP. He made his debut and started 20th, but ended up ninth. And I think this type of one day show rewards the teams that, you know, if they come in with a really, really solid car, you don't have the time to make a whole lot of changes in practice. They only had 80 minutes. And uh, from talking to Mike Hall earlier today, he said they weren't really focusing even that much on what to, what their setup was going to be for the qualifications process because the car had to be set up for the race by the time they entered qualifications because they were going to impound the car. They're going to face those same things for races at Road America and at Iowa later on in July when they have double headers there. So I think this was a good test run uh, for those types of situations. And I think all in all, the only real, um, the real downfall to this was a, a, a guy like Takumasato who wrecked his car in qualifying uh, with, you know, with, two hours or so until the start of the race. And they didn't have enough time to make those repairs uh, to, to get that car in the race. You had that issue. Um, you also had Renus VK. He crashed in practice. They didn't make a qualifying attempt, hoping to just be able to get the car ready for the race. You had Santino Ferrucci's team didn't feel confident enough in how the car ran in practice to even want to make a qualifying run so they continue to work on the car so that's kind of a situation where that's the example of uh maybe the downside of a a one day show is that you might have a team that comes in i don't know if you want to say unprepared but just uh not with a car that's properly equipped for the situation when you have those unknowns of the air screen and the tires and um and they're maybe some of the the folks that uh lost in that situation, I guess, for lack of a better term, but you're going to have that. You mentioned the aero screen. What was it? Obviously it's a whole new thing. It's been another uh, thing to deal with on top of everything else that's been going on. What was the, what were the feelings? What were the reactions by the drivers? Some of whom had very little experience with it. Yeah. I mean, just about everyone did as far as um, how it would perform on an oval. They did a couple of the tests in the fall on some mobile tracks, including at IMS with, uh, with Dixon and I think Will Power. Uh, that was in early October, but the only guys that had, and they'd made some changes to it too. So uh, I think the only drivers that had driven on an oval in the closest iteration to this air screen as we had in the race on Saturday were, of course, uh, the rookies in the race. So guys like Renus and Oliver Askew uh, and Alex Pillow and then Scott McLaughlin, they all three did a, uh, an oval test right after the uh, 
Coda open test um, back in back in February. So I think part of the reasoning for that is that uh, they were wanting them to then be able to also drive at the Richmond test that was supposed to be in April, and they couldn't join the field until they had done that test there at Texas Motor Speedway, oddly enough. So uh, lots of unknowns with that. I think from talking to some drivers after the race, it sounded like it affected the center of gravity a little bit, uh, but they still really couldn't tell a ton because these tires probably weren't the ideal tire compound for this type of a track. So I think guys still left the race a little bit unsure on how that's going to affect things long-term, at least on an oval, they probably feel a little bit more comfortable on a rotor street course because they had all of them tested at Sebring along with the test at Coda. But um, I think for the most part, the biggest thing to come away from this was just the, the cooling for this device still isn't quite there yet, whether it's the cooling tube that goes straight into the driver's helmets that's new or the cooling ducts that are on the lower end of it that's supposed to allow some airflow to come in to kind of mimic a little bit of what the drivers are used to with having the wind just straight in their face normally. Um, that's still got a ways to go, but putting that out to run it for the first time in 95 degree heat uh, at Texas and beyond an oval certainly probably wasn't the best conditions, uh, but it might be the harshest conditions outside of an Indy 500 uh, in August that we could have later this year. Do you think, I mean, is this one of those things that people are going to talk a lot about leading up to it and then it's going to sort of just fade away because it didn't turn out to be that big a deal? Or is this something that's going to continue to be a topic of conversation amongst drivers and the impact it has? I think, I think it probably will still get talked about a little bit. Like I said, I mean, the three guys we talked to immediately following the race, I don't think had too many issues. You just had to be drinking lots of water. I think, I think I read somewhere that Tony Kanaan said he drank seven bottles of fluid in the race uh, lost four pounds. Those guys are used to driving in a really hot conditions in the summer and they're in a fire suit, but this kind of ramped things up a little bit. Felix Rosenquist um, even lost his drinking straw during the race. And that was early on in like maybe the first 50 laps. So he literally wasn't able to drink anything the last 130, 140 laps that he drove in that race, which uh, I haven't got a chance to ask him about, but had to have been incredibly grueling. But um, I think the cooling part, that was the thing that we've heard about really from the beginning. It hasn't been as much about the sight lines. There were no complaints that I heard about on as far as the, the tear-offs that the drivers were going to have to get pulled off of the screen. This, was all, this race was also run right around sunset, so there was still some glare and there were some worries that uh, the setting sun in the, uh, the back stretch of the track was going to be a visual issue. And I don't think we heard much or noticed much from a driver's perspective on that too much. So if they can work on the cooling of it a little bit, I don't know if they're really able to, uh, you know, put together another iteration of this aero screen device before the end of the year. So this might be something guys kind of have to live with for a little bit and, you know, and, and hope that over the off season, they can work things a little bit better. It will be interesting to see how it, how that feels uh, on a road or street course, because as far as those ducks are concerned, you're on a slower course, you're not having that force of that air coming through even quite as hard. So when we get into the IMS road course in July, cars are moving slower and it's still going to be really hot. Um, you could have a potential of that being a little bit more of a concern, but we'll have to wait and see. 
obviously there are no fans there. I don't imagine you've covered too many sporting events in which there were no fans. Uh, what impact did that have? Watching it on TV, it's not something that leaked out at me. It's not, I mean, the, the focus of the cameras on the track, obviously. You miss the fan reaction at the end when Dixon wins. Uh, but what, you know, what was your take? You were actually there. What was it like being the The weirdest moment, I think, throughout the whole day was immediately following the national anthem because we still had that. We still heard that. Uh, and typically at any sporting event, whether it's an NFL game or an NBA game, uh, a race event, certainly you have the very end of that national anthem. And then you just hear this roar of applause that's one of the biggest that you'll hear all day outside of the start of the race with the green flag and the checkered flag uh, when the winner crosses the finish line. And it just utter silence. And it felt really, really weird because that was a moment where you didn't even have the sound of the cars on track. Um, so I think that's the point where during the race, um, you didn't maybe notice it as much. They had, you guys probably saw a little bit on the broadcast, they had, um, as they sometimes do at races, even when they're not totally full, you had some uh, some fabric with some advertisements that stretched over lots of the sections of the seats to cover them up a little bit. Uh, and I, the way I understood uh, talking to NBC folks before the start of the race, they were going to try to really make some tighter shots on the card. So I think that's probably what helped the broadcast. For me, I think it was that the biggest moment that you really noticed it was pre-race and even during like during practice and qualifying where leading up to the start of the race, it really kind of felt um, to use Tony Kanan's words, really felt like a, a high profile open test really until you actually had cars gridded up uh, and starting to go. But I think during the race, you had so much action happening. Uh, and even if you have fans there, the focus is still going to be on track. So I don't think during the race, it's something that, you know, whether it's drivers or, or folks, from the media that uh, really noticed it all that much. Uh, and the drivers, I mean, what was their feelings about it? How, you know, and the, and the people running the, the event, uh, obviously you want to have fans there, um, but was this uh, uh, an, an effective alternative given that this is pretty much your only option, uh, at least in the short term? Yeah, I think in the short term, it's just going to be some of what we're going to see. We heard yesterday, I believe NASCAR is finally going to be bringing some fans in very, very short amounts to uh, to some races here in June. But for the most part, uh, even for obviously the NASCAR event at uh, July 4th and 5th at IMS, IndyCar being there as well, we're not going to have fans. I think it's, it's certainly a, a big financial hit, particularly for IndyCar race promoters where they're not they don't already have the TV money baked into their revenue for to come away from the weekend. And then not having fans is really tough. I think it's something that we, the sport probably won't be able to do short term, but Eddie Gossage mentioned uh, even a month before the race, that this was kind of just something that he felt like he was willing to do to, you know, lose a little bit of money to help the process of IndyCar getting going. And I think that's a goodwill that Roger Penske certainly appreciated. They lost some money as well by taking a smaller sanctioning fee from Eddie and the folks at Texas uh, in order to hold this race. So, uh, you know, Eddie talked about being there watching it before the race is, I think the word he used was depressing. Um, and I can certainly understand that from someone who's seeing all these empty seats and to him, that's just, that's money that they're not able to bring in. 
uh, and that's that's tough. The drivers, I don't think, noticed it too much from talking to them when we're actually during the race, but certainly afterwards when you have Scott Dixon in victory lane, he's celebrating, He's he and, and Eddie Gossage are the only people that are really able to even be there beside uh, a video camera and someone with a boom mic and you're looking up and there's no one in the fans cheering or no one in the stands to cheer you on. Um, I know Scott said that that did feel like a very, very weird uh, moment to be celebrating a, a season opening win. Uh, let's uh, just to bring an end to uh, the, the first race of the season. Uh, well, what was your takeaway? Uh, what teams came out the best? What were the winners? Who were the losers? I would say uh, biggest winner here, obviously, uh, expectedly would be Chip Ganassi Racing. They had what appeared to be the two fastest cars all weekend. Um, Felix Rosenquist made a bit of a risky move there, finished, uh, I think, around 20th. Um, but that's not, you know, that's not representative of the, the car that he had, and it's also not really representative of the strength of driver he is. So that's something he can sure up. Um, Team Penske, I think, come, came away with a really solid weekend, despite what Simon Pagano and Joseph Newcarton said. Um, were cars that weren't really quite there, certainly compared to what CGR had. They were complaining really from right after the first uh, first pit stop stint, just about some some vibration, and I think that had to do some with how they were how they were wearing those tires. Um, whether that has to do with some other uh, manner that the car was set up, probably, but they still finished second and third. So when you have Team Penske having a, a rough day and still finish putting two guys on the podium, even if Will Power was back, I think, in 13th. Uh, that's a, a really solid day. Um, rough day for Andretti Autosport. They came into this race with a fourth of the field, in the, uh, as well as, as Jack Harvey um, in that technical partnership. And they had two guys that didn't even start the race on time because they had engine issues uh, and then had to – serve penalties for fixing those engines and got uh, kind of put behind the A-ball right out of the gate with Brian Hunter-Ray and Alex Rossi. Zach Veach still had a really strong day, finishing uh, finishing fourth to them. Brian Hunter-Ray still managed to finish on the lead lap in eighth, but uh, those two guys, I don't think that's really representative of how strong they could have potentially been. Zach was, feet, Zach was really fast in practice as was Ryan. I think Ryan would have been someone that really could have contended to possibly win that race. My call even said that that's the one person after watching practice and qualifications they were really expecting to have to contend with. Um, rough day also for Dale Coyne racing. Alex Pillow um, was taken out early in the race by Renus VK around lap 37 in his rookie debut and Santino Ferrucci uh, stopped the race about uh, 40 laps shorter show with a, a technical issue. Um, kind of a bummer, bummer start for that team that's gone through a lot of changes uh, this offseason, as well as uh, Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan racing with uh, Graham Ray Hall suffering the same engine issue as Rossi and Hunter Reyes start the race. And you had Takim Wasato, who was back in the garage at that point, uh, probably very disappointed in not even being able to start this race after taking the pole a year ago. So I'd say those are the two probably biggest winners and biggest losers to come out of this. Another winner, obviously, was the Foyt Racing Team. It did, at one mm -hmm. point there, it looked like it was going to be a really good story for them going back in Texas, but uh, nonetheless, a more uh, a better performance than we've seen from them in a long time. 
Yeah, certainly was. I mean, to have to have two Foyt cars finishing in the top half of the field um, to start this season, I think that's really strong. They've kind of gotten off track in the last couple of years when they don't start the season very strong and then they start tinkering and experimenting with things and taking some risks. And when they've done that more often than not, they've, they've just pushed themselves further off track. So I think um, minus a couple pit stop errors there toward the end, Charlie Kimball probably had a top five or six car. Tony Kanaan was, you know, right on the tail end of that group of the guys on the lead lap all, all day and finished uh, 10th or so, I think. So I think having both those guys start strong there. Um, we'll see now when we move to the uh, GMR Grand Prix what Dalton Kellett can do for them. He'll make his rookie debut at IMS, but you'll still have Kimball in the car, uh, and it should uh, hopefully shape up to be uh, a positive season for them after some, some uh, rough ones these past uh, well, obviously great to have, just as a, a, a sports fan myself, it was great to have a race, have something to watch, have, you know, that, that's new and live. Uh, so that was great. Uh, the other news this week was obviously about fans here at IMS in, uh, in Indianapolis. Um, there will not be fans at the Brickyard, the Grand Prix, and all that. I think that takes, you know, there was a lot of talk, but that was going to be sort of the return of sports to Indiana, to Indianapolis. It still is, but without the fans, I think that takes a little bit away from it. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on uh, a Brickyard and a, a Grand Prix event without any, without any fans? Yeah, I think um, some of the quotes that we've seen from Roger Penske these last couple of days, it did sound like um, in some part it came down to them just being a little nervous about pushing forward with fans there uh, and not having any sort of a – Re, a negative rebound effect on what they could do uh, or would be allowed to do at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway come August for the uh, Indy 500. It does also seem like they would have probably had to get some sort of an exception from state because Marion County, as it stands now, has been about a week or so behind the uh, behind the timeline of the rest of the state to open up fully for Phase Five, which was. Uh, which initially was targeted to be for July 4th. So we could still potentially have the rest of the state open up, allowing social gatherings of more than 250 people on July 4th. But I think from what it was looking like tracking into this past week that Marion County still wasn't going to be there. So you have, you have to wonder a little bit without having talked to Roger yet, um, what those conversations with state officials uh, and local officials were like, you know, if they were lobbying to get some sort of an exception to that rule, if they were you know, trying to push up the reopening of the of Marion County a little bit, who knows? But uh, I think when it came down to it, um, you still would have had a lot of people really excited to get back to a racetrack in in Central Indiana, especially for three races over two days. But the number of people that they might've pulled in or be been allowed to hold over those two days of racing at IMS probably pale in comparison to the number of folks that they at least ideally want to have here in August for the 500. Um, what that is going to be like, we still don't know, but I think this was just kind of a long-term play for Roger Penske and his team, hoping still that they can have a best case scenario play out here again in a couple of months. Yeah, I wouldn't think there would have been – in the stands, I can't imagine there would have been an issue with social distancing mm -hmm. for the Brickyard, for the Grand Prix. 
you know, they got logistics to deal with that we aren't, uh, you know, that, that, that isn't ever something that we have to confront, which would be getting people into the track, concession stands, bathrooms, things like that. Um, again, you'd still think that it would be doable, but, you know, but, but you also don't want to make a mistake uh, at, at this point. So, yeah, um, and it could have been, been obviously uh, Indy 500 currently scheduled to go off August 23rd. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your feeling? I mean, and they've said if there's no fans, they're not holding it. I think that's probably the right call. I mean, one thing uh, when I've been in uh, Indiana for 17, 18 years now, and the first thing I was like, you know, at a calf certainly was aware of the Indy 500, but was this was certainly no expert on it when I when I first moved here, started working at the Indy Star. Uh, one of the things you learn very quickly is it's not just a race. It's about so much stuff around it. It's, I mean, it's an entertainment uh, event, and that stuff is, draws as much interest almost as the race does. So I think I sort of I, I get where they're coming from is in terms of having an Indy 500 without any fans would be kind of a letdown. Um, where do you think they're at right now? Just mostly speculating. Will there be fans allowed August 23rd? Is Are we looking at uh, going back to October more likely? Or where do you think the, the, the series is at for, for the Indy 500? Yeah, I mean, I think, as you said, I think I, I can certainly envision very easily a scenario where you could have fans socially distanced properly um, even as soon as this July 4th weekend. I think we were really – when we've seen the crowds that have been there for the Brickyard and for the Junior Grand Prix, you you would have thought that there would have been an ability to do that here this weekend and that or in a in a couple of weekends and that might have been a really good test run. Uh, that was the thing that I was thinking was most important to come out of that Brickyard weekend is that they could see how their plan worked um, and learn from that a little bit. But maybe they felt like. You know, if there's anything to learn from that, that, uh, that they might not be able to do it. So I would say at this point, I mean, I, I understand Roger's position. Um, he sounds like he's pretty firm in that. And the, the visual of having no fans in the stands for his first 500 um, after, you know, after I imagine that we've had some other racing events by that point that have gone on to be held with fans That'd be a really tough visual. It'd be a, it'd be a tough blow. Um, but I also don't think, you know, I also don't think you would want to not run this race at all, period. I mean, we've had, um, I guess we've had the, the Coca-Cola 600 ran back on the Sunday of Memorial Day weekend, the NASCAR event that typically is, uh, is held that same day after the IndyCar race. They ran on the same day that they were scheduled to. They didn't have fans there, but you still ran. And you maybe didn't see quite the uh, heightened excitement for that race, but it, it still got a lot of people interested. Lots of people watched on TV, and it was kind of something you had to just kind of roll with. But I do think the 500 is a bit different, and I think to hold that race without fans, um, it does take away from it. There's a handful of people that are present there that day among the 300,000-plus that are concerned about who ends up with their face on the Borg one or trophy down the line, but so many more um, just care about what the being there for the pageantry of the race, seeing people that they haven't seen in a year and that they just see every single time the 500 goes on. Now you come to the, the idea of who's going to be allowed to go, how many they are allowed to hold. I think that's something that's probably 
um, still very much up in the air and something that we have that somewhat depends on um, some of the health circumstances that we see over these coming weeks. And I'm sure that's also some sort of a negotiation with the uh, state government too on what they feel like is comfortable. But it, it does certainly sound like we are going to have a race uh, in August. I think Mark Miles was quoted a couple days ago of saying that October date they had kind of toyed with publicly about possibly moving it down the line, moving it down the line didn't see really realistically at this point why the, um, the health uh, situation would be necessarily any different in the middle of October as it would be in August. So if you're able to have fans uh, in October, why wouldn't you be able to in, in August and vice versa? So I think, I think it does sound like they're really honing in on that August date that we've heard about now for a couple months. Uh, and I would I would expect to have some presence of fans there. What that looks like, how that is, uh, how that plays out, how that's organized, um, what rules those fans and those organi organizers are under. Who knows? Yeah, it seems uh, just hard for me to imagine putting three hundred thousand people mm -hmm. in that confined space. At the same time, we've seen other you know you know very well publicized situations where people have been outside not without social distancing at you know various beaches and things like that and we really haven't seen uh any kind of outbreak from that it does seem like being outside makes a big difference versus being inside uh, and i don't doubt that there'll be a lot of people who probably just won't be comfortable going so mm -hmm. that would probably keep the attendance down and maybe that's manageable it's going to be a really interesting uh it's going to be really interesting to watch. You had a story this week about how, what the fan experience might be like, how they could control that, whether there's a, you know, the Eddie Gossage laid out their plans of using apps uh, for, for doing that, whether there's an app or it's simply message boards or emails or texts or whatever they're doing. Uh, we got a story posted on anystar.com right now uh, that people can view, but guess, guess give us a taste of that. What, what are some of the challenges that these event organizers are, are going to face once a significant number of fans are allowed back in? Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it just starts with how fans enter the track. I mean, we've seen for years and years and years, uh, and even recently, I can't remember what year it was, but there was an issue with getting uh fans into ims before the race started and there was a huge backup and you can't if we're if we are still operating under the circumstances of not having a vaccine therefore needing to somewhat socially distance from people a little bit you can't have these lines that stretch for you know a quarter mile of hundreds and hundreds of people packed in closely probably waiting to get in with their their tickets i mean that's the first thing you have to um you have to tackle so maybe that means um as i mentioned in that story maybe it means staggering uh when people are allowed to enter based on uh based on their ticket so maybe you only have like one specific gate and you have uh, a certain time window that you are allowed to come in obviously you have then issues with people getting stuck in traffic missing their window, um, older people not really understanding it. And, and with something like that, there are bound to be issues with that. Um, another another uh, tough part with that is just who's allowed to come. I know, I think uh, from talking to Doug Bowles, I think it sounds like they're about halfway sold as far as tickets go for a normal year. And they've only been selling a 
couple dozen of tickets uh, a week now for the last several months, just due to circumstances and people being really uncertain about whether whether a race is going to be held or not, and if they're going to be allowed to go. Uh, but being half sold means that you've already sold tickets to 100 and what 25,000 people as far as bleacher seats are concerned. So um, if you feel comfortable, like you can hold that amount, maybe you continue selling. If that's kind of the limit, then maybe at some point they'll you know, pull off selling tickets. Uh, and that's possibly the way that they do it. I guess if you're a really, you know, a rabid long time fan, you probably already bought your ticket or you renewed your tickets from a year ago. So they probably don't have in that scenario, um, maybe an issue with not being able to admit someone that's been going for 40, 50, 60 years. Um, but beyond once fans get in the track, uh, you probably have to assume that if it's not completely full, that they'll have people somewhat strategically placed and spaced around the grandstands. Um, you have the issue of trying to make sure people aren't, uh, aren't congreg congregating in, uh, you know, in, in public, uh, shared areas, whether it's bathrooms or concession lines, things like that. The one interesting thing that I learned from putting together that story is that, uh, with IndyCar's partnership with, NTT Data, who is the title sponsor of the series and was starting last year in 2019. Um, NTT has been uh, creating some technology that you can place that's uh, probably a, a camera or sensor of sorts that is actually able to detect if too many people are congregated in a certain area. Now, it's not to say that IMS has already installed this technology um, on the racing track grounds, but they have used this uh, and utilized it in some other places. Some other cities have partnered with them. Um, so it sounds like maybe IndyCar and IMS has the technology at hand to be able to control some of this and monitor it. And, you know, they've still got more than two months. So I think as fast as Roger Penske moves and as fast and as diligent as the people around him move, I know they'll have a plan as long as they have fans there. Um, and we started to get a little bit of that, a taste of generally speaking, what that might be or what that could possibly look like from talking to Eddie over the weekend. All right. Well, we thank you for listening to, uh, IndyCar weekly. We'll have Connor Daly back for our next, uh, podcast. Um, and uh, thank you and go to IndyStar.com uh, for more coverage of IndyCar. <laughs>